Lord, I ask for a filling of your spirit tonight. Because Jesus, uh, we don't want to understand only the words on the page. We want you, by your spirit, to make us alive to your word. (laughs) We're fully confident that your word's alive. We pray that you'd make us alive to your word. Do it, Lord, in our midst tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 30. Now, when we come to chapter 30, the book of Jeremiah, we're coming to a whole new section of Jeremiah. The next four chapters are very different from what has gone before. What we've gone through in the first 29 chapters of the book of Jeremiah has been a persistent and... I don't know if depressing is the right word, but man, it's rough. It's a rough message of judgment that we've seen through the first 29 chapters. Is that not true? And it's a good message. We need to hear it. And of course, Judah, the kingdom of Judah in the days of Jeremiah, they needed to hear it for sure. So we're not despising the message of judgment. The message of judgment is at the same time a message of God's mercy to us and to ancient Judah. But when we come to these four chapters... 30, 31, 32, and 33, we're coming into chapters that have great hope and great glory within them. Matter of fact, for that reason, we're going to slow it down a little bit. We're going to enjoy it. Our normal pace through the past several weeks of of Jeremiah has been to do two chapters a night. Tonight, we're just going to do one chapter, and you're going to see some exciting, exciting things about God's hopeful restoration here in Jeremiah chapter 30. So let's just begin with it now, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, Write a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, since we sort of have a unit here of these four chapters, 30 through 33, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1, gives us a time frame for when this prophecy was given, or when these prophecies. Some commentators believe that what we have here is a series of shorter prophecies that were kind of put together, but we have a general time frame for it, and it was during the reign of Zedekiah, when the Babylonians were surrounding Jerusalem, and the fall and devastation of Jerusalem was almost at hand. In other words, what I want to try to communicate to you, this is a prophecy given when it's the very darkest in Judah. The very darkest. All that gloom and doom and devastation, all the judgment that Jeremiah has spoken of with such power and eloquence in the first 29 chapters, when this prophecy is given, it is knocking at the door. And in the midst of that, you're going to see Jeremiah sees the light of God's hope shining even in the most extreme darkness. And he tells him here, verse 2, write it in a book. Jeremiah was commanded to write the following prophecy. Now, it's not only because the prophets were supposed to write it so that we could read it later. You're going to see that the command was very important to write the words of this prophecy because especially so much what is contained in these next four chapters, we're only going to take a look at the first chapter tonight, So much of what is contained in the next four chapters has to do not just with the days of Judah when the Babylonian army was surrounding Jerusalem, not just for the time of Nehemiah and Ezra when they returned from captivity and came back, 
So much of what we're going to see in the next four chapters has to do with the ultimate restoration of Israel in the very last days. We're going to see it here tonight in chapter 30. That's why it's important to write it down so it'll be preserved for those last days. Now, look at what he says here in verse 3. I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah. Now, this is a kind of promise we've seen stated many times before in the book of Jeremiah, have we not? There have been many of these kind of promises. I'm going to send you into captivity. I'll bring you back out of captivity. But I want you to notice, even here in verse 3, there's something that indicates it's different. Look at verse 3 again. I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah. Wait a minute. Israel went off into captivity. The northern kingdom with its capital, Samaria, it went off into captivity more than 150 years before this. That nation was gone. They were assimilated. But God says, not only will I bring back Judah from the Babylonian captivity, I will bring back the Jewish people collectively. Not just Judah, but Israel and Judah. You see, what we're being clued off to, even as early as verse 3, is this signals something greater than merely the return from the Babylonian captivity that we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is especially indicated by the last words of this chapter. The last words of the chapter read like this. Verse 24, in the latter days you will consider it. That's what God says of this period. Friends, this has to do not just with the ancient times, but in times yet to come. That is what chapter 30 mainly concerns. So take a look now with that in mind. Take a look starting at verse 4. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Now, I I wouldn't blame somebody here. You're listening to me tonight and you go, wait a minute, Pastor David. You told me that this was a hopeful chapter and this just sounds like an awful lot what we read before in the book of Jeremiah. Judgment coming and it's really bad. And friends, it is really bad what's described here. Take a look at what it says there. Verse uh, Verse four of chapter 30. The Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. We've heard the voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Jeremiah is again poetically describing the terror of the Jewish people, of Israel and Judah, under a great incomparable calamity. Do you want to know how bad it is? Jeremiah paints the picture. Did you see it there in those verses? Notice what it says here. It says, ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. Hmm. Is a man ever, well, of course the answer is no. A man is never in labor with a child. Then why would you ever ask such a chilly question? And Jeremiah says, because in the vision I see, in the the, the picture I'm painting prophetically, I see men doubled over in pain in a fetal position, as pale as anything. The only way I can explain is these guys must be in labor. They look so miserable. By the way, don't you ladies think what it would be like if men had to give birth? Yeah, it it would probably be a very different world, wouldn't it? Yeah, 
Uh, Men probably couldn't take it, could they? Jeremiah is seeing a bunch of men and they are so in agony. They are so beside themselves that the only way he can explain is they must be giving birth. Now, of course, they're not. He's just painting a picture of their unbelievable pain and refuge and despair. They don't know what's going on. Now, notice what he says. This is the pain that he's pictured here. And then he says, notice, for alas, verse 7, that day is great. There is none like it. Please get this picture in your mind. He's painted a picture of calamity coming upon the Jewish people. Are we agreed with that? And then he says in verse 7, That day is great. There is none like it. Now when I read that, that instantly excites my biblical imagination and I start doing some biblical networking in my mind and I remember that this describes something greater than even the conquest of, of, of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It describes something greater than even the desecration of Jerusalem and the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes the Syrian. It describes something greater than the devastation that came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans conquered it. It describes something that Jesus spoke about. Notice that phrase, there is none like it. Two phrases, the day is great and there is none like it. First of all, the phrase the day is great, what does that even mean, friends? In the Bible, the idea of the great day is connected to the calamity that comes upon the earth in the last days. What do I mean? Well, look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. You were just probably reading that in your devotions this morning. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter There the mighty men shall cry out. What's he talking about? The great day of the Lord. The same terminology that Jeremiah used. How about the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 17? For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Or Revelation, chapter 16, verse 14. Gather them to the battle, that great day of God Almighty. Friends, you see what I'm saying? That phrase, the great day, refers to calamity in the very end times. As a matter of fact, when we link together that phrase, the day is great, when we link it to the other part of verse 7, where it says, there is none like it, we remember that Jesus said that there was coming a day of incomparable tribulation. Please listen as I read Matthew 24, 21. Please listen. Then there will be great tribulation such as not has happened since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. I'm going to read that again. Matthew 24, 21. Then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. Friends, do you realize what Jesus said? He looked forward, not in anticipatory sense, just announcing it. He saw in the future and described in the future a time on planet Earth that would be the worst ever. 
Would you just pause for a moment and let that sink down into your mind and into your soul? Has this planet seen some pretty terrible things? Has this planet seen a black death sweep over Europe in the medieval times that killed anywhere from one quarter to one third of Europeans? Has this planet seen a wars that has devastated sometimes for decades whole populations? Has this planet seen genocide and natural disasters that have killed thousands upon thousands? Friends, we feel like we've seen it all. We've seen the death camps. We've seen the death marches. We've seen the horrible things that people do to each other. We've seen humanity at worst. I hate to say this, but you haven't seen the worst yet. Jesus says, it is yet to come. Now, friends, what did Jeremiah say in verse 7? There is none like it. There's a phrase that we use when we talk about God's plan for the future. One of the phrases that we use to describe this period of calamity in the very end times, we use the phrase, the great tribulation. We use the phrase because Jesus used it in verse 21. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, then there will be great tribulation. So we talk about it in those terms. Friends, I want you to know something. Jeremiah is describing the great tribulation. Let me read those words to you once again. He says there, That day is great so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, of Israel's great distress. This time of Jacob's trouble goes beyond the catastrophe of the Babylonian captivity and exile. It goes beyond what happened to the Jewish people under the Romans. And if I could say, it even goes beyond the Holocaust that was put upon the Jewish people in the 20th century. Friends, there is a coming time of catastrophe upon the world and including the Jewish people that was vividly described by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. There, he connected it with something called the abomination of desolation, which I won't talk about tonight. But friends, this is what I want you to understand. When we connect these thoughts biblically, we understand that this time of Jacob's trouble describes a time when a great and terrible world leader and the governments that he represents will try to destroy the Jewish people. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation tells us that Satan will be working at this time and Satan will be as if he were a great dragon which tries to destroy and swallow up the Jewish people. It'll be the greatest and most grotesque display of Jew hatred that the world has ever seen. But God will protect Israel in that day. Now friends, I'm not trying to minimize the terror that will come upon the world at large in this time. Nor am I trying to minimize the persecution that will come upon Gentile followers of Jesus in that time. It'll be severe as well. I'm not trying to say for a moment that the Jewish people will be the only people afflicted in this time of great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. No, not by any means. But they will be special targets during that time. And God will work in and through this season of terrible catastrophe to bring salvation to the Jewish people. That's what will happen. Because, friends, by the time of the end 
of the time of Jacob's trouble? This is what Israel says. They look unto their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you realize that before Jesus left this earth, but before he went to the cross, he looked over Jerusalem. He stood on one of the hills where he could look over and get one of those grand panorama views of the city. He looked it over, and this is what he solemnly said to Jerusalem. He said, you will see me no more until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And friends, it'll be terrible catastrophe that comes upon the Jewish people. It will be a time of Jacob's trouble Yet nevertheless, in and through it, God will bring salvation to the Jewish people. Matter of fact, that's what he says right there in verse 7. You think I'm making this up? Look at it right there. Look at the end phrase of verse 7. But he shall be saved out of it. Through this time of incomparable tribulation that will come against the Jewish people, God will rescue them and bring them to his salvation in Jesus Christ. He will protect them. The book of Revelation describes this. And he will bring them to faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And so all Israel shall be saved. Friends, this is the glorious promise of God. And it will flow out of this time of Jacob's trouble. May I notice one other thing about that phrase at the end of verse 7, where it says, but he shall be saved out of it. From time to time, I like to quote to you a Puritan commentator, John Trapp. Oftentimes he has quaint things to say. He said this on this phrase, not from it, yet out of it, the Lord knows how to deliver his. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, and neither does Jeremiah, that God will deliver them from this time of great tribulation. He will deliver them out of it. What does that mean? They will be in it. They will be in it, but through it, God will protect them. I find a contrast here because Jesus told his people to pray. This is in Luke chapter 21, verse 36. He told his people to pray to escape these things. He also told them, speaking about this time of Jacob's trouble in Revelation chapter 3, that his faithful people would be kept from the very hour of calamity that was about to come upon the earth. That's in Revelation 3.10. I guess what I'm trying to say is this, is that God promises that those who already trust in Jesus Christ will be delivered from this time of Jacob's trouble. It will come upon the earth, but God will catch away his people beforehand. And as Paul says, and thus they shall ever be with the Lord. This is the blessed hope that our Lord speaks of. Again, it's a different path for the Jewish people who in that regard will have to undergo the time of Jacob's trouble. Verse eight. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up from them. It's kind of interesting. 
In the past in the book of Jeremiah, the broken yoke was something that the false prophets did. But now God says, I'll tell you the true story of the broken yoke. There's going to come a day when no one will ever afflict or enslave the Jewish people ever again. That shall happen in the end times. He'll burst the yoke. Foreigners, verse 8, shall no longer enslave them. Verse 9, and they shall serve the Lord their God. They will be brought unto true submission to Yahweh, no longer resisting him. Friends, what a glorious thing this will be. Because I want you to know, in the world today, the vast majority of ethnic Jews, those who are genetically the Jewish people, they're not serious about serving the Lord their God. Oh, now, I believe that there are some who even in their own misguided way, in their own very observant Jewish traditions, at least in some manner, they're trying to seek after the Lord their God. But friends, the vast number of ethnically Jewish people today, they're entirely secular. They they may observe some traditions along the way, but they're not serious seekers after the Lord their God. No, God will change that as well. God will change that and make them true seekers and servers of the Lord their God. And notice this verse 9, and David their king. You see, in that day, God will also raise up for them David to reign as king. Now, I have to give, uh, what do they call it here? Um, what do they call it? The, the advisory that they do for drugs. Uh, the, uh, the, the disclaimer, the disclaimer. That's what I need to do. I need to give a disclaimer here. What I'm about to tell you, gee, I feel embarrassed saying this. What I'm about to tell you, not one of the commentators that I read regularly for the book of Jeremiah agrees with me on this. Every one of them, even the ones I respect, would tell me that I'm wrong. Yet I cannot resist telling you it nevertheless. All the commentators I read say, when he says David in verse 9, he doesn't mean David. When he says David, he means Jesus. He means the Messiah. That's what all the commentaries are reading. Well, no, David's just a substitute. He's just a stand-in. He's just, he, he really means the Messiah. He really means Jesus Christ. But he just wrote David instead. Friends, I'm just wacky enough. And I agree, I'm wacky. I'm out, you don't have to follow me out here on this limb if you don't want to. But I'm just wacky enough to believe that when Jeremiah wrote David, he meant David, the son of Jesse. And not only this passage, but many passages in the Old Testament, passages like Isaiah 55, verses 3 and 4, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, and Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, all of those, peop- all of those passages speak of David reigning over Israel in the age to come. So you know what I think that means? I think it means that David is going to reign over Israel in the age to come. Listen, Jesus indicated, we we wish he would have spelled it out more clearly, but at least he indicated that when the age to come, when the millennial earth, when Jesus rules and reigns in his bodily presence over this earth. Friends, I am not discounting the fact that the kingdom of God is in some sense among us now. I am not discounting the fact that in a spiritual sense, there is a rule and reign over Jesus on this earth. This is true, but I believe that the Bible very clearly points to a greater rule and reign of Jesus over the earth. I think that's incontrovertible. There's a lot of debate as to what that means and how it happens, but but there is a greater reign to come I think nobody can deny. Friends, Jesus indicated that when that reign comes, 
Jesus will divide authority to rule with him amongst his people. That, that, that different people have different authority, uh, presumably over different geographic places in the earth. That, 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 that Jesus, in his administration as king of the earth, that he'll assign somebody to be, can I just throw out kind of a wacky, he'll assign somebody to be the mayor of Santa Barbara. Who's up for that? You want to be mayor of Santa Barbara in the millennial earth? Wow, no takers. Well, gee, okay, Jesus knows here. Nobody wants a job in this room. He'll divide up authority over the whole earth. Is it crazy to think that Jesus would give Israel to a resurrected David, the son of Jesse? I don't find that crazy. I I find it, well, why not? Why not? And I believe that when he says in verse 9, and David their king, that that's exactly what Jesus meant. So notice here, verse 10. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Do you see that great word in verse 10? Listen, I know, and please remember the context when these prophecies were first uttered. Friends, the Babylonians were at the gates. The city was about to fall. And what does he say? Don't worry, in the end we win. Don't worry, look at that again, verse 10, Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob. God did foretell a time of terrible catastrophe to come upon the Jewish people, this time of Jacob's trouble, yet God did not want them to fear, but to be confident in their ultimate victory and the promise of salvation. He says, behold, I will save you from afar. Then verse 10, Jacob shall return. We'll have rest and be quiet. Friends, this is something more than was fulfilled in the return from captivity under Nehemiah and Ezra. This is something even more glorious. And God even says in verse 11, I will make a full end of the nations where I've cast you. Assyria, gone. Babylon, gone. The the ancient Greek empire, gone. The ancient Roman empire, gone. I'll make an end of all of those. Verse 11, yet I will not make a complete end of you. God's promise to Israel was that they would not become extinct as a people, either by death or assimilation. I don't know, when's the last time you met an Ammonite, a Moabite, an Edomite? When's the last time you met those? Friends, it's in the nature of such people groups either to become extinct or to simply assimilate into larger groups. Not so with Israel, because God's promise, he swore, I will not yet make a complete end of you. Now friends, clearly, clearly, this is a promise that God made unto Israel, unto the Jewish people. We understand that. But I want you to understand that you and I, even as you are as Gentile as the day is long, even if there's not one drop of genetic Jewish blood in you, Friends, there's something precious for you in this promise. What do I mean? Do you see what God's saying? You've sinned. You've been an idol worshiper. You've rebelled. You've gone after all these terrible things. You've been the terrible thing. 
I have disciplined you. I've put my hand upon you in a severe way. I've driven you out to the nations. You have been under my hand of chastisement. All those things are true. And yet God says to the believer today, yet I will not make a complete end of you. You may have given up on yourself. God has not given up on you. God has not finished with you. The last chapter of your book has yet to be written. I like what F.B. Meyer says about this. He says, take to heart these tender words. God will not make a full end of you. It may seem as though nothing will be left. The furnace is so hot. The stock is cut down so near to the ground. But God knows just how much you can bear and will stay his hand. I will not make a complete end of you. This is God's great promise to his people. I wonder, you know, I wonder looking out upon faces of people who are so faithful to come on a Wednesday night. Here you are. A lot of you have had long days. A lot on your mind. A lot of you, you're kind of working hard to stay attentive right now because it'd be easy for you to doze off. I always like what Charles Spurgeon said about the people who come to a midweek service and they have a hard time staying awake. He said, look, I'd rather they come and get half a loaf rather than none. I feel the same way. Look, just give me at least half the message and then you can doze off. At least half. But here you are, but I wonder, somebody comes and they just kind of think, Lord, it's just too far gone. I'm giving up. Lord, if anybody in this room knew, knew how black and shameful my life really is, I'd have to give up. Listen, God knows. And he says, I will not yet make a complete end of you. No. No, he's got his hand of mercy and grace and love upon you. But, but... And I say this to you, perhaps disobedient believer. Maybe I'm speaking to a couple disobedient believers here tonight. Listen, God will not make a complete end of you, but look at verse 11. I will correct you in justice. You you kind of thought that, oh, great, you won't make it. Oh, Lord, you're so full of love and mercy. It's just like, well, free pass, right? No, God says, I will correct you in justice. Oh, I'll bring my correction to you. Don't you worry about that. I'll guide you. You'll feel that chastisement. But even that is an expression of my great love for you. God in his love will not allow them to go altogether unpunished. He's talking about their great problem now, starting in at verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. You know, verse 11 said, I will correct you in justice. Well, here now God describes the correction. He describes how difficult it is to be corrected by the Lord. You feel like, look at verse 12, your affliction is incurable. God, I'll never get out of this. I'll never come out of this pit. I'm always going to be in this low, afflicted place. In verse 14, all your lovers have forgotten you. Now, in the context 
he's probably talking about the pagan nations around Judah that they trusted in to help them. Chief among those pagan nations was Egypt. When the Babylonians were really starting to put the pressure on the kingdom of Judah, they said, we'll find help from the Egyptians. We'll make an alliance with the Egyptians. And they went after them as lovers, so to speak. You know what God says? They're going to forget about you. You thought you had it so great with those things that you ran after? And, you know, can I just make a little analogy? The things we set up as places of false confidence in our life, idols, places of false trust. I mean, that's what Egypt was for many in Judah during this time. It was like an idol, a place of false trust. God says, your lovers have forgotten you. Where are they in your moment of need? Friends, your idols, my idols, I'll include my idols in there too. Our idols will let us down. So there you go. You make an idol out of your addiction, right? You, you give everything in your life to fuel your addiction. Doesn't matter what your addiction is. You know, take your pick. You know, spin the wheel and take your pick, whatever your addiction might be. In your day of trouble, what's your addiction going to do for you? It's going to forget all about you and dump on you. Your idol of success, you gave everything for that altar. You laid everything down at that altar. Man, you paid the highest price. It was your true idol in God. In the needful day, you're going to find that success has forgotten all about you. Your idol of the praise of man, there was nothing more important to you than how many likes you got on that Facebook post or Instagram whatever and all the other things. The praise of man in whatever way it might be manifested. That's what you live for. Friends, in the needful day, when you're really up against the wall, go ahead, count your likes. See how much good that does you. They've forgotten about you. It's better for us to understand it ahead of time. He says, they've forgotten about you. And then notice what he says in verse 15. Why do you cry about your affliction? In other words, what he means by that is, Shouldn't you cry about your sin instead of crying about your affliction? Those, those words, have, I have a painful recognition of those words, don't you? If I'm in a season where God is chastising me for my sin, what do I complain more about, the sin or the chastisement? The chastisement. I complain about my affliction. God wants to turn my heart where I really complain and I'm offended by my own sin. And then he says, we're sin because your sins have increased. I've done these things to you. In other words, God said, look, I'm going to deal with these things. I'm going to cleanse you. But notice how he's going to come and fight on behalf of his people. Verse 16, therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all those who prey upon you, I will make prey for. I will restore health to you and heal your wounds, says the Lord. Because they called you an outcast saying, this is Zion. No one seeks her. So if God says, well, listen, the day will come where I will rise up and defend you. And all those who came against you, I'm going to come against them. All those who sought to devour you, I'm going to devour them. And friends, it's happened throughout the ages with those who have set themselves against the Jewish people and the Israelites. Those that have sought to devour them have themselves been devoured. But God fulfilled his promise, verse 17, to bring health and restoration to them. Verse 18, we read. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built on its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Again, look at it there in verse 18. I'll bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents. The city shall be rebuilt. And then in verse 19, I will also glorify them. I will bring them back. I will restore them. Then look at verse 21. Please, if you will, put your focus on verse 21. Look at it there in your Bible. Their nobles shall be from among them. And their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Friends, do you know some of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament? Do you know the Isaiah 53s and the Psalm 22s and the Genesis chapter 3 and all those great messianic prophecies throughout the, the Old Testament? This is one of the more obscure but wonderful messianic prophecies. What do I mean by that? Look at it, verse 21 again. Maybe we should just talk about it and read it from the ESV. I find their translation very helpful here. Here's the ESV translation of Jeremiah 30, 21. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me? God here talks about a ruler who is yet a mediator and a priest, and he approaches God to draw near God and man. Where did I get the priest part out of that? Look at it there in verse 21. It says, then I will cause him to draw near. That's technical language, draw near. Draw near in a priestly sense is the sense of the original Hebrew wording. Friends, do you see what he's talking about here? It's talking about this one, verse 21, who has pledged his heart to approach God. Yahweh says, who is this that's coming near? To draw near to me, man and God himself. Who is this? It's the Son, Jesus Christ, who has pledged his heart, who has engaged his heart. Can I just offer you something that's a wonderful suggestion here? Whoever loved God in heaven greater than Jesus? Anybody? Anybody got a counter suggestion? If you do, text it in to uh, 805-26-JESUS. We'll talk about it in the question and answer. If you know anybody who loved God more than Jesus, you just let me know. Then I got a second question. Was there anybody ever who walked this earth who loved humanity more than Jesus? Who loved people? Read the Gospels, look at his life. Is there anybody who loved man more than Jesus? So this one who loved God more than anyone and loved man more than anyone said this, I got to bring the two of them together. No price is too great 
for me to pay joining together God and man. And he was the one who came forth to make that reconciliation. He pledged his heart. He engaged his heart. And look at the fruit of it there in verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Brings together God and man in this wonderful restored relationship. Now look at the end part here, verse 23. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. A continuing whirlwind, it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. Friends, the whirlwind is often a figure of God's judgment. It comes like a tornado that brings destruction. It can't be contained. It can't be controlled. Go ahead and try to control a tornado. That's what it's like trying to control the judgment of God. You can't do it. God says, this will happen, this glorious restoration of Israel, but it'll happen also in the context of judgment upon a God-rejecting world that will come upon them like a whirlwind. Friends, I cannot read this chapter and read about the glorious deliverance of God, about God challenging Israel. Your lovers have forgotten you. All of those people that they put your trust in, they've forgotten you. I can't help but think about our present day. And look, it's always a dicey thing to try to correlate things in the Bible to things that happen in current events. I understand that. Because events change. And if the Lord should delay his coming, maybe a whole new set of circumstances will come up. But can I say, if I was an Israeli, and if I thought that America would save me, I have every reason today, on July the 15th, uh, 2015, to say, my lovers have forgotten me. I have every reason to believe that America, that country that once protested was such a great ally of mine, has sold me out to the Iranians. And it's only a matter of time until that regime in Iran gathers an atomic weapon. And they have openly boasted, openly boasted that they'll use it against Israel. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine that in the 1920s and the 1930s, when an Austrian man was rising up and protested that he would destroy the Jewish people, that he would wipe them out of Europe, that everybody just said, ah, he doesn't mean it. Ah, he, he, he's just throwing red meat to be. He doesn't really mean it. You, you can't really believe that. Ladies and gentlemen, if the events of the 20th century have proven anything, it means that the Jewish people should understand when somebody says that they're going to destroy you, you should believe them. And yet, it seems like the governments of the world give a free pass. Israel will be protected. The Jewish people will be saved. It will be a time of Jacob's trouble. It'll be a tremendous calamity. But their salvation will come from the Lord. Woe to those nations 
even if our own nation is numbered among them, woe to those nations that turn their back on them. Woe to those nations that decide to do that. But ladies and gentlemen, God will rise up and protect Israel. He will do it. He has promised. Look at the last phrase there in verse 24. In the latter days, you will consider it. Let me just tell you this. From my understanding of the Bible and as it speaks of what will be in the very end times, I would say without reservation that the stage is set for the very soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, I I could say this. Look, I'm trying to think about this as rationally as I could. Is it possible that God in his mercy would say, I'll give him another 50 years, another 100 years, and at that time I'll replicate the same kind of conditions that we see in the world? That's possible, isn't it? He could do that. But all I can say is that the stage is presently set. And we should realize that when it says, in the latter days you will consider it, we better consider it right here, right now, and make ourselves ready for the soon return of Jesus Christ. Father, that's our prayer. We pray that you would make us ready for Jesus and his return. And Lord, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour. We understand that it's possible, Lord, since we don't know it's possible that it's still a long way off. It doesn't feel like that, Jesus. And I know that you don't want us to live like it. Lord, help us to consider these things in the very last days that we are ready for your return. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a long time since we've done this. It has, yeah. Yeah, sorry for the surprise. I should have said, I just... I was going to say, the first question... Is when did we decide we were doing this tonight? Well, actually, and I, I, I thought about it this afternoon because I realized, look, see, I realized chapter 31 is so amazing that I, I, there's no way I could do 30 and 31 together. There's no way. So I said, I'd rather slow it down. But I go, look, I, if I just do chapter 30, probably going to have some time for questions. But here's the problem. Then I get so excited about teaching it that I completely forget to tell anybody about questions. So just when I started teaching, I go, oh, yeah, I remember. So I thought about this afternoon, but okay. I forgot. I'm sorry, That's fine. man. It was, it was like fresh revelation from the Lord at That's the moment. Right. Take it for what you want. All right. We, we brought you a stool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to use it. But. i got to settle down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, a lot of questions. Some of you sent some really um, thought-provoking ones in that, unfortunately, I don't think we could answer it. Or... It, it would, it would take, it, well, it would take a lot of time, so I'm sorry. First of all, let me say, this I think is a great segue into a wonderful plug for your Bible college class. Oh, that's right. I am going to teach on eschatology. What is eschatology? Well, eschatology concerns the end times and God's plan for the future. We're going to be taking a comprehensive look at God's plan of the ages from times past into the future and making it a very comprehensive view of uh, God's plan, uh, past, present, and future. Okay, a few questions kind of came in, so maybe just in a you know, couple sentences, give us like a synopsis then of the layout of what's going to happen in the future. Well, look, I, I'm the first one to say that prophecy is best understood uh, in retrospect. So, I mean, that, honestly, that's the case. But, but yet, God doesn't want us to just say, well, don't think about it, and don't, 
don't try to figure it out at all. So we try to figure it out, but yet we keep a loose hand on it at the same time. Okay, that being said, we understand that there will come this time of great tribulation. And we believe that it's connected with um, a seven-year period that remains in a period of time that God appointed for Israel, prophesied by Daniel. We believe this because Jesus made specific reference to this, Paul made specific reference to this, the book of Revelation makes specific reference to this. It's repeated in its connection. And in this last seven-year period, which technically the last half of it will be the time of great calamity, um, in that period... Uh, At the end of it, this time of Jacob's trouble, God will preserve Israel, bring them uh, in a large sense to salvation, and at the end of it, Jesus Christ will return in glory. We also believe, and when I say we, I mean myself and anybody who happens to agree with me, that Jesus Christ will, I say this because there's controversy on this in the Christian world, and I don't want to act like, you know, I'm the only one that has an idea on this. There there are good and godly people disagree with me on this, but I pray God will speak to them. But... Yeah, that's when you got to do J. Vernon McGee's thing. What did he say? But if you want to be right... If you want to be right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I believe that the catching away of God's church as described in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that that will happen before this last seven-year time appointed to the Jewish people before this time of Jacob's trouble. I hope that helped. You've got to take his class because you'll get much more of the outline of Jacob's trouble and yeah, I, those I, events. I, I fear that I've created more questions in the minds of some people, but if I have, just use it as like an appetizer to dig in. Um, so you mentioned about God protecting Israel so will no Hebrews die in... Oh, no. There, 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 will be, there will be many who die. But as a whole, they will not be destroyed. So the all Israel doesn't have to be a inclusive every single Israel person no, at the moment. that's correct. That's correct. Uh, what about, you mentioned Matthew 24, and that's an interesting passage, and the, the word elect in there. Mm-hmm. Who, who is that a reference to? Well, in, in that sense, um, when it says that he'll gather his elect, what, which, which particular reference in Matthew 24? Uh, 24, 21. Matthew 24, 21. Where he talks about... I deleted the verse. Whoever sent that, sorry. It was just so much um, typing and copying and pasting. You know this passage where he's talking about when you see these things, they ask for the signs of the kingdom and all that. There will be a great tribulation, such as not has happened from the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And then is there more to the verse than that? Oh, 31. 31. Sorry. Okay, okay. Matthew. 24, 31. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In the context of Olivet Discourse, to me, that describes Jesus coming in glory at the end of this period. And so he's gathering his redeemed, his saved, who have survived through the Great Tribulation. So it's not just Israel, and it's not just the church. No. You think it's both? Yes. Okay. Um, what about what happened 
in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem? How should somebody who has an eye to understand God's future plan interpret that? Um, it was a prefiguring of this ultimate um, terror that would come upon them in the time of Jacob's trouble in the very last days. There are many reasons for believing that it did not fulfill it, but it prefigured it. In a very similar way, too, uh, there was a Syrian general named Antiochus Epiphanes, who, about 150 years B.C., about 150 B.C., he did a horrible desecration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it would have been very easy for the Jewish people to think that that was the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. It seemed to fit it in very large measure. Nevertheless, Jesus made it very clear that that did not fulfill the abomination of desolation. Rather, it was just sort of a prefiguring of it, and the ultimate abomination of desolation had yet to come. In the same way, the devastation that came upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it's sort of a prefiguring of the ultimate catastrophe that will come in the time of Jacob's trouble, but it did not fulfill it. Uh, just to clarify, because of that question, um, Jesus made this prediction, and, and some interpreters would say, well, it was fulfilled at that time. So that was the, the reason I, I gotta for that say, question. I, I, I've studied this very closely. I think that there are tremendous problems with saying that all Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 uh, was fulfilled in that. Tremendous problems. Okay. Two more. There's a lot of things I want to ask, but is there a difference, somebody sent us in, between being resurrected and being reincarnated? Absolutely. There's a huge difference. Um, Reincarnation, in the way most people talk about it, uh, talk about the same soul, so to speak, coming alive in a different or similar life form altogether. That is a completely different concept from resurrection, where one thing you need to remember about resurrection is your resurrection body is connected to the body you have right now. It's not the same, but there is a connection between the two. The analogy that Paul used in 1 Corinthians was that your present body is like a seed, the resurrection body is like the plant that comes from the seed. A biologist could tell you the connection between the two, and they don't look alike necessarily, but there's a connection between the two. So it is with our natural body right now and the resurrection body to come. Okay, one more question. You said that David will sit on the throne, not Jesus. Okay. Oh, the throne of? Of Israel. Israel. Right, okay. So. so Jesus is the king of the earth, the king of kings. Right. Okay. David is given responsibility under Jesus over Israel. That, that's my conception that not a single commentator that I read today agreed with. I want to make that clear. If I'm telling you something that's way out of the mainstream, and, I'll, I'll tell you. And by the way, these are guys that would agree with everything else he said probably. Uh, mo- some um, of them. Some of them would. Yeah. That's a tricky issue. Yeah, and, and this is the kind of thing. It kind of, I was kind of disappointed that none of them agreed with me. There's a couple of them that I thought would. but okay. Even the guys I was kind of, kind of counting on to agree with me, they didn't. So. Um, and that is because you interpret it literally, very literally there. Um, 
I'm trying to think of that. I, I do. I'm trying to think if it could be said that they... Yeah. I think I take it more literally than they take it. Okay. In that vein of interpretive thought, then, how do you... <laughs> sorry. Um, What's so funny? And some people he, say he, that he they're... Must, he must think he's got a real gotcha No, I know I don't. I don't have a gotcha moment. I know I don't. Wow. Um, oh, it's so hot. Um, so can you talk about literal interpretation and sacrifices taking place during this time, too, in a physical temple, physical, literal sacrifices being offered? Well, I think that... that um, First of all, uh, those literal sacrifices could literally be offered. It's unto what purpose. That is the great issue there. And of course, that that awaits for the verse-by-verse study that I do through the book of Ezekiel, because that's the book that talks about this. But that the fact that there are literal sacrifices, that's not really the, the explosive issue. The explosive issue is, are there literal sacrifices unto atonement of sin? That's the much more problematic issue. And it's a difficult issue there in Ezekiel. And this is why Keith's laughing, because he loves to bring up this particular sticking point. It's a very difficult passage in Ezekiel. It is. No, I just love to hear you talk about it. But, yeah, if I could say this about about prophetic frameworks, you know, eschatological frameworks. Listen, friends. There is no prophetic framework or plan that is without problems. All of them have their problems or difficulties. You, you just tell me what framework you want to have, and I'll tell you the problems with it, including my own. My study, my research, leads me to be premillennial, uh, pre-tribulation, in terms of the catching away of the church. Not because I see zero problems with that approach. I see some difficulties biblically with it, but I think the problems in those approaches are to be preferred from the greater problems as I perceive it in other approaches. That's the best way I would describe it. Good. I guess we'll close with prayer and a song. I suppose so. Okay. Father, we thank you that you do hold time in your hand and that with all the mystery that... um, is involved in these things, that the one thing that we can be sure of is that you will do what you say. And what you say and what you plan to do is the right thing. And that your intentions toward us are good. And um, in all of this, Lord, help us to live in light of eternal realities, not to be bogged down um, with petty things here on earth. And uh, we can't help but hear this and to just think along with uh, John to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, in whose name and for whose sake we pray. Amen.